Day Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of comedy, self-help and business collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and today's episode is called From Right On to Right Wing. This is the story of how a working class kid born into a Labour household in South London ended up deserting the left and voting Tory. So let's talk about class for a moment. To quote Spike Milligan, Money can't buy you friends, but you do get a better class of enemy. Britain has always been a society deeply divided by class. Here's a thing you may not know. Well, you may know it. The listeners of Namaste Motherfuckers are nothing, if not erudite. But here goes anyway. The term you guys originated as a way of describing low-class rogues and villains. It came from the traditional burning of guys on Guy Fawkes Night. The RSPB began in 1889 as a protest organised by the middle-class women of Didsbury against the trade in feathers for fashionable hats. The most middle-class thing that happened to me this week was opening the larder to find a mouse tucking into my chia seeds, and I wish any part of that sentence wasn't actually true. But the reality is that social mobility is in decline in Britain, according to a recent poll by the Social Mobility Commission. Although over 60% of people felt they had received a better school education than their parents, nearly half said they had a worse standard of living. Most people of all ages agreed that there were fewer opportunities for people from disadvantaged backgrounds to go to a top university or to own their own home. Get me on a better microphone. Oh, that's nicer. There you go. That's mellifluous, as I believe they say of honey-toned vocals. We've been speaking a lot today. That's my guest today, comedian, writer and political commentator Jeff Norcott. The survey results also showed that over 40% of people agreed that where a person ends up in society is largely determined by their background. Jeff is the exception to that rule. He is now a conservative voting married man living in rural Cambridgeshire a self-described right-wing centrist dad. I know, I had two, I had two bits today. I had Julia Hartley Brewer's show this morning, then uh, Politics Live. Are you throwing um, those things about like it's not even a thing? How is it, um, yeah, with Julie, how... With Julia's politics, she'd probably have me on every single day, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's true, spoiler alert. You'll no doubt have seen Jeff on The Mash Report, Mock the Week, Would I Lie to You, Eight Out of Ten Cats, or heard him on the news quiz. He fronted his own BBC Two documentary, How the Middle Class Ruined Britain. And his appearances as a social commentator include Question Time, Loose Ends and the Today programme. He's a satirical commentator in various national newspapers and as a comedy writer, he is in high demand. Jeff and I talked about the right, the left, class, Russ Abbott, grief, masculinity, therapy, disability, feminism, podcasting, belonging, man whispering, and pigeons. But I started by asking him about his book, Where Did I Go Right? How the Left Lost Me? 
which had just come out the day we spoke, 10 days ago. It was out today, so we're recording this. Or Can I timestamp when we're recording this? Yeah, yeah. What a wanker for saying timestamp. Can I timestamp you know, that? Yeah, you've yeah. really changed, Jeff. You have you changed know what? since you've gone I to have, the right. Since, well, since I've become a writer, actually since I've become a lovey, I guess, you know, with talk, writing about my journey. What kind of nonsense is that for a kid from a council estate? I actually used the word liaise earlier it, as a word. I said it. Yeah. I said, if you could liaise with, oh, what that's a hard one to come back for, really. And now you've said it again. You said that you said it. So even if it's no one word. caught it I mean, the first time. Yeah. I mean, I can see it's like all these middle class things. There are a lot of valid reasons why they take off. Brioche sounds wanky, <laughs> tastes lovely. Liaise sounds wanky. Very useful word. Grouse shooting? Where are you on grouse shooting? I suppose that's more upper well, class than middle class, isn't it? Oh, the thing I've realised about upper class is actually a really t- that actually applies to a really tiny amount of people, doesn't yeah. it? I didn't realise how how narrow that band is. So I think that's that's kind of country. If you know what ah, I mean, that's a different. Yeah. They've managed to sort of extricate themselves from the the, the current the sort of naff perception of middle class people. We're we're country people. And, that's and true. They, so do you think country people think they're posh or they could be posh, but just call it country? Do you think you well, could be in the country? Could you have a place in the Cotswolds and be grass shooting with Jeremy Paxman and Cameron? I'd well, I'm now friends with Jeremy Paxman. Are you? Uh, so you could yeah. be doing oh, did, that. Yeah. Did you so Paxman? Did you say Paxman or Clarkson? I said Paxman. Oh no, not friends with Paxman. Look, I hold I, on, hold I, on. You're friends with Jeremy Clarkson. I say friends. He say bloke who wrote one or two jokes on his recent thing. That's and how I say why, why. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's great. I, I, I worked him on a, on a thing. We were throwing a couple of ideas about. Was he throwing a couple of things about? Because he's known for that, isn't he? Well, I, I did not see that Jeremy Clarkson. I saw just. I mean, he is given given the way that I approach comedy. He's got, he's my grand poobar, isn't he? He's the guy that's done it before. Not, you know, uh, in terms of throwing things around, but just in, in terms of being bluntly honest and, and kind of damn the consequences about what he thinks. And I think that it was interesting. I mean, obviously, as he said to me, you know, he's had to adapt what he's, people wouldn't think that he has to adapt what he says, but, but he, he does, but but he's just a very funny, clever person, you know? He just and says, well, and is it like that? that we, well, we should say for anyone who doesn't know, um, it, it kind of the, the book is what it says on the tin in a way, in that you grew up in a Labour household and you are now, as you described, I think you said you're one of only uh, about six right-wing comedians. So you're you're flying the right-wing comedy flag, but you might mm. not have been, um, that might not have been anticipated had people known you as a younger man. So mm. how do you describe yourself nowadays? Well, politically, I, I think I've chilled out a bit since Brexit was delivered. Uh, the process of people trying to, from my point of view, thwart that vote, uh, it radicalised me. And when I say radicalised, I mean I tweeted a bit more aggressively for a while than I might have otherwise have done. And, and I think that there was something about that 2019 general election result, which for me was, as d- democracy should always be, about the least shit of two options, it wasn't a rabid endorsement of Boris Johnson. I uh, came as close to not voting at all in that election as I had for a long time. But I just sort of gone, you know what? I, I'm not really angry about much. What I am is uh, is interested. I think my politics are probably best described as being like a right-wing centrist dad. 
mm-hmm. you know they're not really that extreme in fact if anything they probably sit very close to the absolute middle of british politics it's only the context of this industry that we work in that makes it seem in any way unusual you know and, and the fact that we're it, so divided i guess as a society so even though if you look at people in power they are mm. actually quite centrist and have been for quite a long time. But the people oh, God, trying yeah. to get in power at the moment and the stuff that's going on beyond the fringes, I guess, I mean, no one would have guessed 18 months ago that wearing a mask would be a sort of political statement and divide us. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that even since I've written the book, this culture war, whatever it is, the idea that you have this composite personality, which broadly speaking comes from your Brexit vote, but then applies to how you feel about Meghan Markle, how you feel about wearing masks in Audi. Like all of this comes from your How mate. you feel about being an Audi? That's another How you question. feel about being... I am very comfortable in both uh, Waitrose and an Audi, but wow. that's a consequence of my upbringing. Right? Why didn't you call your book that? I, if I could have got, if I could have got sponsorship of them, I would have, but, but yeah, I, I, I don't, I I reject this, this culture war to a point. What I have is like, I just want to say exactly what I think at at any given point. And, you know, so when that interview with Megan, they do piss me off as a couple sometimes. They are a bit grating, right? I don't like the way they put their chickens on television. Uh, do you see yes. that? They're always, they're always there gathering eggs, aren't they? Getting Oprah into their chicken the... coops. Unnecessary. Well, it's sort of like I did think that feeding the chickens could become a metaphor for when somebody else averts their eyes while their partner basically shits on their family. Oh, she was feeding the chickens tonight. Oh, boy. Did you see his face when when she was feeding the chickens, when she did when she did the revelation about, you know, we actually got married three days before. And you could see even all his private school and army background wasn't helping him have a poker face. He was like, oh, yeah, I mean, you can only bury so many feelings. The upper classes are very good at it. But some some came spilling out. But the, the truth was, after that interview, I felt slightly more positive towards them as a couple as I did than I did before. And then I spoke about that on my podcast. You know, my podcast probably is skews right. And people aren't always happy about that. But what I don't want to do is is be owned by the idea that I have to have a, a pre sort of a cookie cutter set of ideas uh, that apply across all cultural issues. I think that that is sort of the enemy of comedy and satire. And is it your your podcast, by the way, is called What Most People Think. And we'll, of course, put links to your podcast and your book and all the good stuff in the show notes. But um, I did hear talk of the fact that because it's Patreon funded, right, your podcast, Mm. and that you were loath to take the dirty dollar from any advertisers in case it skewed the content. Was that your way of saying no one wanted to sponsor it? So I had to Well, yeah, one one way. No, it's what what happened was when the lockdown started, I thought I do want to do this weekly. I'd always wanted to do it weekly. Um, but equally, being a conservative, I don't really like doing anything for free. So at that point, I hadn't had any interest from advertisers. And so so the Patreons kindly funded it and it helped me invest in it. And, and, and then, and then uh, podcast platforms and advertisers did come in after that. But I just thought, you know, I like this. This is weird thing where the conservative guy with the podcast, probably one of the only people that doesn't have it plastered with advertising. Totally misunderstood capitalism, hasn't he? You're just like, yeah. Well, weirdly, like the football team I support, AFC Wimbledon, a fan owned. So I'm sort of socialist in various ways. But the truth, but the truth is, though, Kelly, I think that I want to be absolutely free to have any guest on I want. And and you know, like I've spoken to, I've spoken, I've spoken to Owen Jones, and I've spoken to Lawrence Fox. And I don't want to be answerable to anybody for that. And I think that having a group of patrons has been a, it's been a great thing. They're really cool people. I do also do the occasional new material gig for them. And that thing of going into London, trekking in to do 10 minutes of new stuff for a panel show, I think that I will always now 
do that in the same way that we're, we're, we're chatting now. So, so it's been, it's been a good thing. And look, everyone's got a price. Everyone's yeah, got a price. Haven't but, we? But if I can possibly do it, it's my intention to keep it Patreon only funded. So in terms of what you actually, it's interesting, the title of your book, Where Did I Go Right? How the Left Lost Me. That's the second of the three plugs we agreed I'd give it. Uh, But those are, so what, in terms of motivational theory, in terms of moving towards something or away from something, were you drawn towards the right or were you kind of drawn away from the left? Which came first? I've done a lot of interviews. That's a really good question. I don't, probably... Yeah, it was a, it was a mixture. I mean, it, it was probably principally first. There were a set of personality traits that I had in very young life, which were a good sort of early kind of setup to, to eventually be a conservative. I was quite a judgy little kid, you know what I mean? We we had owned a house, a private property for the first eight years of my life, and then my parents got divorced, and it was then that we moved into council estate life. So I, I hadn't grown up in that world. It was a sort of funny status drop that occurred at a point. Oh, that's interesting. So, because they say that it's our experiences up to the age of seven that define us in many ways. So, it's interesting yeah. that you're, because the whole sort of um, not spin of your book, because it's really you, but the backdrop of your book is, you know, South London kid grew up on a kind of in part on a yeah. kind of council estate, labour household, disabled parents, and has come out of this not yeah. as you would expect. But maybe there's um, it's interesting to think where it's so your parents were obviously the same two people uh, when when you weren't living and when you had, had a privately owned house. But yeah. what what do you think the shift was then from those early years to suddenly being in a bit of a different social class? Well, I mean, I you guess? know, I voted, I voted, I, I I went, you know, I changed while we lived on the council estate. You know, um, then we moved to a council house in Mitcham, and Mitcham is. I mean, Mitcham, just to give you an idea of Mitcham in South London, if people don't know it, it's the only place I know where a McDonald's shut down. Do you know any, <laughs> anywhere else? The, the McDonald's in the town centre shut down in two, 2012. So there's there's Mitcham, right? Yeah. So that's I've, sobering, I've lived in, actually. That's, that's really so, made me be at a loss well, of words weirdly, in the first time since the podcast started. It's oddly bleak, isn't it? And, yeah, and it is. Mitcham will have always avoid gentrification, right? So I lived in I lived in a, a, a nice house in a private street. Then I lived in a rough council estate, but in Wimbledon. And everyone drew, oh, well, Wimbledon must have been fine. Not in the 80s and not if you lived near the dog track. And then I lived in a house, but in Mitcham. So it, the, the, my life has always sort of you straddled You bucked the this, trend this, every which way, didn't you? There was always straddled this precipice between two things, but but I did vote. You know, I voted Labour in ninety seven, two thousand and one, and stuff. And then, um, but there were just little elements of the the sort of broadly left narrative that was starting to jar with me. E- even being in teaching, you know, there were certain. I remember the, the the prevailing winds of the time were Blair's education, education, education. And when was it? So that would be the early the early noughties. Teaching came after advertising. So I was I, was, I went into teaching two thousand and two, mm-hmm. and the the mood music there was all everyone's got to get a degree and i'm thinking yeah. do do they do yeah. they really does everyone have to get are you telling me and i've always felt that that the, the the kind of trades got weirdly uh disrespected there and because of my background a lot of the most sort of successful people i knew had their names on the side of a van your carpenters chippies guys that ran kind of like window fitting firms they all did all right and i didn't understand why those careers weren't getting any attention and there was also then the, the kind of trendy teaching methods coming in at that time. And I just started to realise, oh, I'm a bit small, at this point, small C conservative. Mm-hmm. Was that a conscious and, thought at the time or did it just It was, it was conscious, yeah. yeah. No, no, it percolated. But I remember being aware of it and thinking, you know, started to think, oh, for God's sake. You know, the kind of thing right-wingers say when left-wingers start 
wang in on. I was in the staff room <laughs> and they say things are a bit, oh, here we go, here we go. Once you say, here we go, you're already moving to the right. And and, and I remember that one school, they had the, they had kids sitting in on the um, the panel to interview other staff, like staff. And I was like, look, I get that you're supposed to pretend that teenagers are fully rounded human beings, but they're not. Okay, they're deeply confused and superficial. And what they really need, Callie, is like <laughs> structure and discipline. <laughs> they need to be tasered. No, they don't. Uh, so, um, in terms, <laughs> so were you? Because that wasn't that long after we obviously uh, lived through. I know you're a bit younger than me, but we we were um, very much sentient beings during the kind mm. of Halcyon Blair days. Were you taken in by yeah. that? So when it was all totally. kind of oasis in Downing Street and all that stuff, was was that? Yeah. Were you going for that? Well, one, because that, that encompassed patriotism. Mm-hmm. Great. I've always been very patriotic. Uh, aspiration. You know, mm-hmm. it seemed like it was okay to want to do all right for yourself. Even though at the time I was going to a liberal arts college, Goldsmiths, which really rubbed me I went to way. Goldsmiths as well. Oh, did you? What did you do there? I did English literature there. and I did I'd, English and drama. I mean, English and drama, communications, TV. It was very left-wing. I yeah. mean, like in the period I went there, it was, it was straight off the back of Blur... Uh, Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin. So it's very full yeah, of Because I was there with all that lot. So you were the next ah. wave after me. Yeah. And But yeah, everyone really bought into that. But I didn't know anything about it because I was just massively naive and I arrived there. I didn't know what sense of itself it had. And then all the corridors were full of people trying to save Cuba and save the fucking whales and just save stuff. And I was coming from a world where a lot of people were trying to save themselves, Kelly. So <laughs> it seemed like um, it seemed like a, you know, possibly noble causes, but a huge privilege to have space and time in your life to want to save stuff a long way away. It's hard um, for them so, now trying to save stuff on Zoom. There's a lot of there's a lot they're they missing. Can't you can't anything. have those eye looking earnest moments. There's no point in getting banners and T-shirts done anymore. It's, it's, it's hard times for them. It's, um, it's an it's, incredible hashtag. Though. Yeah, that's true. But if you think about yourself as an outsider, because in, in lots of ways, you're you're not afraid to speak out as an outsider on the comedy circuit. And I know I listened to your podcast with um, with Catherine Ryan interviewing you about your book. I thought, what a genius, sleight of hand, to use your own podcast to, as an interview for your book launch and just get someone else to interview you. I thought that was very good. Well done. There were, but- there were very few other offers at that time. I mean, like, you, thankfully, you offered me to be on this. I, I don't get offered to come and chat on many podcasts. I beg you, Jeff. I, I, I But I think that people just think, and this is true of a lot of TV shows, they just think, oh, that will piss off my core audience. But I, I think that in a lot of cases, they don't always understand their core audience. I have loads of left-wingers on my podcast. Well, you're also very, um, I owe you a few debts of uh, thanks because you've come along, you've seen me not that many times live, but you've always given me, you haven't done that sort of really tit thing that people sometimes do and go, oh, you know that thing you do? Why don't you mm. do that? But you're always really lovely and you go, oh, do you, I've, I have a thought, you know, do you want to hear it? And then you give me loads of really good shit that I still perform on stage to this day. So um, so I'm always happy to hear from you and hear what you've got to say. But you, if you think about being an outsider then, so what you're, you sort of unashamedly and in fact kind very proactively embrace what it is you think who it is you are I've seen a couple of your recent solo shows you're wearing everything kind of on your sleeve do you think growing up always slightly not belonging never quite being where you should have been doing what everyone else was doing from a background everyone else had do you think that has enabled you to be okay being treated sometimes as a bit of a kind of social pariah 
Well, yeah, I mean, I must say that in stand-up, I would love to have a narrative that, that I got ostracised and was was kind of persona non grata. But I'd, I'd been doing a stand-up a long time before I started talking about this. So unlike other comedians that are starting to talk about this kind of politics now, at least people knew me, right, um, going into it. But the sad truth is I, I really hate people disliking me. Like, I, I love to be loved. And, and, and part of the reason I started talking about my politics was I realised... I had a pathetic, I had, we all have a need for approval of stand-ups, but mine was pathetic. I mean, I used to wear this shiny suit. You, you did, luckily, you didn't see me. I never knew the shiny time. suit years. I had to burn it. I mean, it was awful. It was awful. I Did you just have was, one or did you have a few? I had a couple and it was because I wanted to be seen. I wanted to be looked at and all this sort of stuff. And then I just thought, it came to 2013 and I was saying to my wife, oh, I just want to talk about other stuff. And she said, well, you're a Tory. That's a bit weird, isn't it? I was like, that is a bit weird. And then and then I just did 10 minutes as part of a, a show at the Leicester Festival that year. And it seemed to be, I felt alive again creatively. I was like, fuck that. That was weird. A couple of people walked out, but it was interesting. It was interesting. So, I mean, it, it's really strange. Like, I'm, it's like, you know, sometimes you flirt with the thing that you're most afraid of. And mine is just being, uh, I guess, ostracized. And, and yet I do this thing, which con- certainly more so at the beginning, less so now. But it did, it did put me on the brink of that in certain in certain situations, you know. Um, I with the pub, the general public giving me grief, I can kind of handle that. I always it always gives me a sort of get a knot in my stomach when it's a comedian that comes for me online. I'd I'd love to say that I don't oh fuck them, I don't give a shit, but I, I do sadly. And is it? I guess when you think about the sort of criticism levelled at you, the sort of cynical view might be well, you are one of very few right wing comedians. There's been a lot written about that, particularly the last year. Um, when mm. everyone's had a lot of time on their hands to be thinking about such things. And people who are cynical and say, well, you know, you're getting on all the kind of shows, you're the you're the kind of right-wing booking. But it strikes me the kind of opposite of that, having worked in telly my whole life and knowing what you get paid for things like Question Time. Mm. That is a lot of jeopardy to put yourself <laughs> in for yeah. a couple of hundred quid. <laughs> so, I wish it was a couple of hundred quid. You're getting a better rate than me on Question Time. <laughs> Just put it that way. Yeah, yeah. The, the other thing is, is that I was the perception I'm across. I mean, the, the critic from the Guardian said recently. He's, since then, he's hardly been off telly. Look, I'm lucky. I'd love. I like the perception that I'm on telly a lot. I, I, I've been lucky to do some really cool shows. I think the perception that I am all across the schedules is, shall we say, me and my agent wish that that was as true as people think it is, and that's not moaning. It's just, it's just a misconception. But do you think that you are, I mean, you know, there is a risk, isn't there, with us looking at trying to make sure di- mm. diverse voices are heard and that we have a good range on all shows. Obviously, that's really important. But there's also a risk that you get the kind of go-to. I'm trying to be the go-to ginger menopausal, fairly new entrant. And it sometimes yes. it works out for me, sometimes it doesn't. But is there a, it, it, is the reality that if people are looking for a few sound bites from a right-wing comedian, they'll be like, oh, Jeff will be up for it. Well, sometimes, yeah, they want balance on their panel, but that's no bad thing. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily look cynically at somebody doing that on the grounds of race or gender. You know, like, it's okay to go Jealously. To I might look jealously at it and go, mm, that's a card <laughs> but I can It's, it's okay. To, but, but then what you've got to do, right, if you get a, a, There's no doubt there's some shows that I've been on that I probably wouldn't have done if it wasn't for the political angle, right? you just got to be honest and own that. You might get, and you know yourself from working in telly, you might get a couple of freebie opportunities out of good luck but if you don't deliver and if people don't watch it if people don't like it you know people always said about at the beginning about Jack Whitehall there was a lot of bitchiness in the industry about him but the truth is like like he people liked him you know he's had a hugely successful team very few people make lots of television shows that are well watched and you so that's what you've got to do is wherever that opportunity comes from 
is to is to just deliver but then the thing that i've done always is try to just say exactly what i think and you know i've been on a couple of news quizzes recently at times where i've had plenty of negatives to say about the, what's the, the, the tory what's government the... because you know being a conservative person and supporting the tory government aren't always exactly the same thing Namaste, motherfuckers. just going back to your backgrounds this uh, description of your parents so your mum was a council estate matriarch crossed with tony soprano and your dad yeah. a maverick one-armed dad so that sounds like uh quite a mm. tough paper round really for a little kid to be going through how was that yeah they my mum was she was just so charismatic I did always get the sense that she was probably a, a frustrated Catholic Italian mother that should have had nine sons right she thought she's loved she loved men I said she's probably a chauvinist actually you know those women that you get that just can't deal with women's bullshit and I just, do just, I do gigs to them so quite often <laughs> But she, uh, but she, but she was a bit like that, you know. And she, um, and she, she was very articulate, uh, but she also knew new politics, new local politics, knew what she was entitled to from from the council. I mean, when when we were trying to get a, a, to move up from a flat to a house, the the campaign of persuasion and I'll, I'll say intimidation that she put on the local council offices was quite spectacular. I mean, she was in there all the time. And when she used to walk into council offices, it was like the old saloon doors were swinging. <laughs> the barman was high. We don't want no trouble in here, Jan. And she, but she was fearsome. And, 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 and that's what I suppose has always been an interesting thing with the recent incarnation of feminism. Is I think if you come from a working class background, the idea of women, particularly as shrinking violence, is, is, a, is an odd one. Because in my family, they're definitely the, the voluble people and she was just but she was very skilled with rhetorical devices and stuff and despite having been brought up in council care herself you know she was uh she 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 wasn't particularly resentful um but it made for a very maverick parent because she didn't have any basis to go on herself she just made very interesting decisions in parenting was she your primary carer who did you live with after the divorce so after the divorce, we moved into the council estate. My mum, at the time, it was all taken for the house, wasn't it? That was what women used to say. Remember in the 80s? Yeah. Taken for the ass. Yeah. And she left him with the ass. <laughs> New strategy. Yeah. Leaving with the house, yeah. move into a council estate, which is an odd one. She we was moved definitely in... ahead of the curve, your mum, wasn't she, the whole time? Well, I, I rate that as a strategy because I, t- I hate being indebted or, or, or being owned by anybody. And, and I guess she felt that she would have been living in his house and he was paying the, you know, the rent and the mortgage and the bills and stuff like that. And she wanted to strike out on her own. And I think I'm quite warm a... into your mum in this conversation. I know she's no longer with us, but um, I, yeah. the, the stuff, but so, so there were lots of kind of, I was thinking when I was thinking about talking to you today and you're now a dad of how old's your kid. You've got one, one kid, one little boy. Yeah. He's five. Five. So you're now a dad yourself. You're living a kind of nice life. You're a writer. You're a performer, comedian. You live in Cambridgeshire, I think. So you've got this kind yeah. of life that's very different. Well, that's what you when you were saying about like uh, living in rural Cotswolds. I, I do live in rural Cambridgeshire now. I've gone. Yeah, I've gone you have. Some way you have gone somewhere. And it's, it's probably. I mean, I don't really know my geography, but you're probably not far from all those people in chipping whatever. But um, <laughs> <laughs> chipping whatever. I was wondering when I was thinking about that, and I, I know you a bit, and we've spoken a bit about your, you know, y- y- your your personal life a bit. And where where did you find role models then? How how have you ended up being somebody who can live in a more traditional, well functioning family when it sounds as if you came from quite some degree of dysfunction or instability 
Well, I suppose that if when you've had, you know, in the divorce, the marriage did get quite uh, lively towards the end. And then my mum uh, took up with my stepdad, Ro, who was in my, in my life from the age of about nine. A very solid man, absolute grafter, worked his ass off, you know, very similar to her, was brought up periodically in council care, but just had a strong value system and stuff. And my dad calmed down, you know, the, the divorce sort of finally sobered him up. <laughs> literally and, uh, sobered him up literally sobered him mm -hmm. up and um and then yeah so in their own way they were they were both like they were all through you know my mum and dad in particular but they all they all came with baggage but equally they had good value systems and they were always kind of just about fight you know they were fighting the good fight all the time so they were like my dad my dad was really kind of had a, a sober view of the world ironically um you know my stepdad was a grafter my mum was a real sort of diplomat you know you know she was good at de-escalating she's good at starting conflicts but she also knew how to de-escalate it um as as well and I think quite also Kelly quite early on in life I became aware that they'd all had difficult childhoods and, and and it sounds like being a bit smart for a teenager but I did actually allow them that very early on I thought, so you had oh, empathy that. for your because it's yeah, unusual totally. to have empathy for your parents I think contempt for your parents that's the stage my kids are at but um I'll tell them that empathy <laughs> is another possibility they might like to explore well, I just, I just, I just trust people. If, if, if I buy into people, I thought, you know, when they said stuff, I was like, okay, yeah, I, I, I accept that. And, and particularly, you know, sadly now they've both passed away, but one thing that does do is give you complete perspective over your parents and it does help you, you know, some of the odder decisions start to make more sense once they're both gone. Because you It's also great when you're writing a book and everyone you're writing about is dead. That's an absolute gift, I would The lawyers were delighted. Yeah, I bet they were. Yeah. I bet they yeah. were. Can I say this? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've just, <laughs> hang on, I've just, what's that, Dad? Yeah. <laughs> but you had, um, again, when I was thinking about what to talk to you about today, and I wrote down that you'd had a, a, bit, a bit of a tough last decade, which is a slight understatement, right? Because you mm. lost your parents, both your yeah. biological parents, your stepdad's, yeah. And your best friend, and you lost a little, your little girl at thirty-four weeks pregnant. So that's yes. that was all. So that's one hell, and that was all in the space of what five, six years. Yeah, yeah, round about that, the middle part of the last decade. It was, um, it was uh, an iceberg in 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 life. Just just hit it head on, and kept going. You know, kept kept working. But I think you know, and I've spoke about this a bit, but. And it's dangerous to stereotype too much about the male and female reactions to grief. But my specific situation, it meant that it was strategically wise to bury some stuff for a while, particularly when you've got a wife who's been, you know, had to do labour for a child that isn't there. Because the, the attention does go to the woman in that situation, which is absolutely and actually, and, yeah, understandable. So, yeah. But but I guess it does always that there is the other parent who's may not have gone through that biologically and physically, but you've still gone through that. And that's one hell of a body blow, right? It can be. And, and what happens is you tend to become the spokesperson for the family. So but you, you, you report on how the family's doing, you know, she's doing fine. We're coming back. I, I, and, and, and people really principally care about the wife. And then at the point where they might start to think about you, that's normally six months afterwards. And if you're not grieving, six months is quite a long time. But if you if you are or you're just starting, as I was, or not just even beginning to start, it doesn't seem like very long at all. And yeah, it sounds a bit of a, a wanky phrase, but it's all when I think you know, push feelings down if you have to, and you've got a, a you know an awkward phrase to use, but it might say man up and get get through something. But just remember where you put the feelings, because that would be the difficulty. If you start suddenly open that chest and go, where the fuck were these feelings? Well, that's the bit I always struggle with. That as someone who is very overly sort of, you know, I, I think I've got a high EQ and I try and 
think through life and analyze stuff. And whenever I have painful relationship breakups, I carry it around and I look at the blokes I break up with them. Like, well, he seems absolutely fine. You know, he's fucking his, you know, his best friend's sister. And then I, I've said to a couple of therapists, you know, but surely yeah. it's better to be like him then because he's not thinking about it and he's just gone off and lived his life and I'm carrying all this. And then therapists will say, no, but you can have the rich texture of the good stuff and the, you feel all of it mm. in more sort of technicolor. But would you say you're, the, the would you say you are someone who sort of packages things away and and tries to kind of deal with it in whether it's gender related or not but deal with it in what maybe traditionally is more of a male way yeah I would say so in the first instance but then I'm also I like feeling okay I, I like to feel well slept fresh mentally alert and anything once stuff that starts dragging on that I'll be relentless in my excavation of myself to find out what that is and how do you do and, that excavation of yourself then well once you've got composite grief of five or more people it's quite you have to let you sit down and just stop and think not meditate but just like who am I sad about what am I sad about you know just almost talk like you know some songwriters write songs by scatting where you just kind of just happen across a feeling it's mm-hmm. always just that little sentence isn't it or I mean and most of it for anyone grief it's almost always I miss them that's almost always what it is mm. I wish that they'd been here it's the most basic stuff imaginable or I wish I'd said this or done that and now yeah it's yeah late. yeah yeah regrets uh, beating yourself up I think I think you know from experience with with my male friends like the beating yourself up thing and maybe it is more natural that men would think that because we are more mo- emotionally retentive during people's lives um, we've said less to these people, you know, we've demonstrated our love um, less to these people. So I, I think that, you know, I've been lucky I have decent therapists and stuff like that. And so I, you I, have, I, you, do, you are a th- believer in therapy. I had to be because I just got to a point where the, the collective shit that had happened had dragged me so far down. I just didn't have a choice, you know, and, and your medication as well. I it's, When you move in sort of like creative circles people often be very casual about medication they just go well you know it's a very brave thing to do to take medication I'm like, it wasn't brave right it was just what I had to do I wish still that I didn't have to do it I, I you know I was always thinking how can I when's the first point I can reduce my dosage and get off of this but it was just a case of I've got a wife, you know, and then I've got then I've got a kid. I've got to got to keep functioning. I well, was yeah, always yeah. I was always very judgmental about um, people taking any kind of medication or antidepressants until I had mm. my first brush with depression, and then I realised, like you, I did it. Yeah. I, I, my show, um, I think you came to it, Super Cali Fragile Lipstick, which, as you'll agree, was the best very thing about show, that yeah. show. It was the title, but the um, but I talked in that about depression and antidepressants, and that you don't nobody's going. Oh, do you know what? today I'd like to go to my GP and see if I wouldn't mind a bit of you know a bit of a, an SSRI dose you, you do it because that's what you have to do to keep doing you it you do but then I think that it can get very comfortable on them I know that because I've done that I remember at times I, w- I just decided and I think anybody on antidepressants has decided to go I'm just going to do this for life and then you think that's signed off now I don't have to worry about this yeah and and I think sometimes I sort of worry that I'm not feeling life in all of its kind of richness and and also sometimes i think that it artificially improves your mood right so if you're grieving there are that's fine that you sometimes you have to push some of that away but it eventually there's something healthy about facing whatever it is that you feel now don't get me wrong there are some mental health conditions where it's not even a possibility for people to do that yeah i'm not not being casual about that but i think if you're if your thing is trauma-based is i just think personally I like to have an idea in mind. I've been on medication several times now of like, right, is, is there a sort of exit? 
route route for this. So it's been antidepressant type SSRI type sort of medication. Yeah, I, I don't understand too well, but it's the one that the so there's one that makes you feel happy. Yeah, and then one that takes whatever mood, decent mood you got knocking about and props it up. Yeah, yeah. And have <laughs> so you tried can, all of those cocktails? No, no, no. So it's been the it's been the same one every time. Um, it's worked pretty well for me. When, when I think about what who I think of you as and what you're, so there's a sort of um your upbringing might have knocked any kind of vulnerability out of you you might have learned to like I'm going to just do what's required I'm going to and your yeah. on-stage persona is very much you know you, you, you'd come on and you joke about you know you think that you know the what's your line you say about being an electrician or something what is it you say on stage uh, why, is, uh, why is an electrician wandered on stage yeah why is an electrician wandered on the stage and you sort of play up to the kind of like every man working class kind of guy yeah and there's is what I've seen of you. You don't talk much about that more vulnerable side or something like grief or or gender. Is it respond? Is that something that you see as quite separate? I have been other shows. Have you? I, I mean, like I've been doing sort of these shows for a while, so it kind of changes the focus. So, if there's kind of social issues or, or what people might call woke stuff that becomes more interesting to you for a while, but I think yeah, there was there was a there was a show not sort of three or four years ago I did that was a lot about grief and stuff like that if, if anything weirdly I, the, the next show that I'm doing there is some stuff that I, some themes that I want to revisit one one of them being about you know the stages of grief when mm-hmm. they say shock denial anger bargaining etc yeah. whatever the fuck it is but I definitely think I'm going to get few... to acceptance at some point I think that's quite an important part of that cycle Jeff don't don't forget that oh, well I went bit. straight to acceptance then worked yeah. back the other way but I am um, I, I don't think the first stage is shock I think it's admin I was thinking about yeah. this the other day. Whenever someone dies, it's like, right, here, you, do you know what you need? It's almost very something weirdly British about burying your head in paperwork. Then the next stage is event management because you've then thrown into organising a fucking party. So I, I hope that, you know, in this way of being funny about, about things, you get information out about yourself that you think, and I am becoming conscious of this, is if that there are a certain kind of bloke that identifies with me, he's, he's dropping in things like depression, counseling medication so on demystifying it just a little bit because one of the problems with a certain kind of bloke is the way that mental health tends to get spoke about is really off-putting for working class men it's always about so brave it's so well done and it's very it makes you feel really uncomfortable but if you can talk about it in a pragmatic way like brain maintenance effectively yeah it's like keeping yourself, it's like going to the gym for your, for your brain, really, isn't it? I went, it's funny because yeah. I did, um, I've talked about this quite a bit on the podcast. People think I've got a slice of the business. But when I did the Hoffman mm-hmm. process um, 18 months ago, I went in there thinking it'll all be women my kind of age. I'll probably be at the younger end. There'll be yeah. a lot of floral print, uh, suede, you know, boots and that sort of thing. And I went in and it was, yeah, I was one of the oldest people in there. And it was mostly blokes and lots of them weren't posh blokes. And it totally, totally threw me. There are also these men's groups as well that, that meet up where where men tend to fall out fall out of touch with their friends more than women as their lives go on so there are these strange men's groups that meet up and it have, sounds a bit like a partridge sketch there are these men's groups no uh, there are <laughs> i attended a few for a taster for a documentary so what are and, they what do what are they doing in the men's groups so they meet up there was one where it was a much smaller group with a guy who's very good called the man whisperer and, and he puts like a pretend fire in the middle and he just goes around and you have to give like a little itinerary of what you are but then you also have to say when you last ejaculated was and i i'm so immature <laughs> it's just funny it's just funny and and so the this lads doesn't happen start... at the women's institute when did you last come they don't yeah, ask when... that <laughs> I know, yeah it was really but then it was it was a good question actually like it was a good question because i think there's a point in middle age it's a room full where... of blokes isn't it always like 20 minutes ago i suppose it depends on the age 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you're right. I had to stop every impetus in me to say something stupid or schoolboyish or immature. I'll go to I'll, I'll let you know. You know what I mean? And they all look at you like, this is and then, so then there was a bigger group, which was about, like, getting in touch with your masculine energy, guys, and, and stuff. And, and there was one bit of that where everyone was walking in circles around the room and some of the blokes had their T-shirts off and were like, ah, you know, like primal screaming, all, all that kind of shit. And, and then one guy, I'll never forget this, there was, a, there was a kind of iron girder that went overhead and just to express his masculinity <laughs> even further, he jumped up and did the pull-up on it as he was going. And he was impressive. Like, it, I thought when he jumped up, he would stack it. But... I just thought, okay, I've reached my limit. But what, what the reason that that group was a success, because evidently there's loads of blokes that they they don't feel that there's a conduit for their masculinity, which is something that they feel, which doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. So they've had to end up meeting up in community centres on a Tuesday night, which is kind of And sad. jacking off on iron girders. It sounds like, I mean, that's but a you've, good You've crossed out. the groups there. You have crossed <laughs> the groups, but maybe that's the group that people would pay more for. <laughs> I think the man whisperer, I might use that as my byline on him. He's great. No, he's, he's worth checking out. If you're interested in all this, there's a bloke, man, uh, Kenny Marmorella de Cruz is his real oh, name. Oh, really? What great names. I'll, yeah, I'll no. put this in there. I'll have a look and I'll put it in the show notes. Get, he... get Kenny on. He's well worth speaking to. Yeah. Is he? Okay. I'll tell him you said so. Namaste, what would you pick as your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment? I met Ross Abbott when I was nine. <laughs> And but now it sounds like I'm just saying this to be funny, but I did meet him when I was nine. I was a big fan. And my mum. So this is the mum, the Tony Soprano, basically bullied the office at Surprise Surprise. Remember the Silla Black program? Of course I do. So she got in touch with them. They were between <laughs> productions, so there was only a skeleton staff. She basically made one poor woman's life hell. It was like, my son needs to meet Russ Abbott. I'm going to just obsess. He's going to meet Russ Abbott. And Russ Abbott was on stage in the West End at the time doing me and my girl. And, of course um, he was. And we 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 went up to meet him, and and I went in there. I told him some surreal joke, and um, it didn't make any sense. And he was kind of like, "Hey, groove," you know, like probably said to his agent, "These fucking surrealists coming through," <laughs> you know, this alternative scene. Um, but what it did do was it broke down. I, I have had a lifelong thing with uh, big, important, and famous people that I'm not that phase. And and my mum did a couple of things like that early in life. She. She harangued Biddy Baxter at Blue Peter once because me and my sister. That's bold because a... Biddy Baxter was nobody crossed Bid... Biddy Baxter. Well, no, and mom, and we we were raised like seven pound twenty a, a like a car boot sale or something really. That's not even sum. the cost of a Blue Peter badge. Not well, even the cost not of with a Blue the Peter badge. <laughs> but my mum got some meeting with Biddy Baxter. Uh, for raising seven pound twenty, that's not even a pouch of food for Shep the dog. You did you did well yeah. there. We wasted her time actually. Did you? She could have made more charity money by doing other things. We actually probably harmed some kids. You did. So meeting Russ Abbott was your namaste motherfucking moment. It does help not being overly, not having your skirt blown up by fame, I think, in our business. I think coming from the other side of the camera, having worked with so many people behind the scenes, it just sort of doesn't yeah. matter. You just don't think of it in that way. When that Now I have professional jealousy, but I still don't yes. have a kind of, oh, I can't talk to you because you're, you're famous. Well, you, you'd be more, I can't talk to you in a room with no other females present. That's true. Yeah. Let's have a me too joke in at the end of my, uh, my feminist <laughs> podcast, Jeff. Thank you for that um, no no that was I was trying I to be like yay sisters right oh yeah you were yeah. trouble is it's a fine line Jeff isn't it? it's a fight for all that, of us this is one of the problems when you sound like me that sounded like I, I that, that's one thing I'm going to just put that out as a clip tonight on Twitter see so no, no, let the people do. Well, it'd be it'd be great for my audience they'll be like yeah you fucking <laughs> but 
I'm, but that's what I sometimes write come a cropper. And, and you're honest enough to say what you thought about that. But when you sometimes do TV stuff, and you, but people can literally think you're saying the opposite thing. Well, it's all I, in the edit as well, isn't it? I mean, I know they say, you know, reality yeah. TV contestants, I used to work on a lot of those shows behind the scenes and they'd always come out and it was a bad edit. You edited me to look like that. And you're thinking, no, you did yeah. that. We made you look more interesting, but you did all that. But people can sew it. That's the bit where, when I was saying to you about doing question time, um, the, mm. I would hate to do question time because I always think there's that one thing you say that absolutely yeah. isn't how you meant it. And then that's the bit they show without the context. Oh, always. Yeah, and yeah, then you're like, yeah. oh, great. I'm the dickhead that said that thing that I don't even believe. Well, what, what, one thing that happens in question time is that the gig itself is quite short and sweet. You chat a bit. There's about 100 to 150 people in the room. Everyone's quite cordial. Even the weird moments seem to come and go quite quickly. But it has this life online that's yeah. so far beyond that. So in the beginning of 2019, I think I was on, it was very Brexit, it was very tense and febrile. And I said something about Donald Tusk. Uh, and I said, Andrew Marr said, why won't any of these EU top brass appear on political debate shows in the UK? They say they represent us. Why won't they come on? And I kind of developed the theme, but then I'd, I'd had a lot of medication because I was ill. And then I said, I said, yeah, well, at the end of the day, he hasn't got the balls, has he? And then you it's can imagine. It's not a question time thing to say, Jeff. That was very a rookie error. That was a rookie. Well, that was my third time on. So it wasn't a rookie. It was an idiot error. Yeah. But even that came and went. And then you, it went out. And then question time, of course, replayed that. And then you just got like the absolute dregs of both sides of the argument. So you got some people like going, yeah, fuck Tusk. Like, yeah. Let's... But also the, all these real remaining middle class dudes drinking Merlot late at night. <laughs> <laughs> just just tweeting Chewing on a brioche course. like they do yeah Bastards. yeah just 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 thinking that that you are the real reason that they're angry about life do you know what i mean um so so yeah sometimes it can be it can be merited i mean i shouldn't have said that you should not have put your balls out and two years later i hope they've receded jeff and that that particular yeah. moment of shame has gone um what is your favorite joke my favorite joke is it's quite a long one but um there's a group of pigeons from Trafalgar Square, right? This is a very old joke and a weird joke. They go up to uh, Buckingham Palace and they see the Buckingham Palace pigeons and they go, oh, hello. He goes, nice to meet you. He goes, you don't normally meet other groups of pigeons. <laughs> you know, he goes, yeah, we, we just, we heard a lot, you know, a lot of tourists chat about Buckingham Palace so we thought we'd come up a, come up and have a look. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, Trafalgar Square, normally at midnight, they people leave a bit of bread and a bit of water. We have a bit of a do, so... Why, why don't you come down and uh, say hello? You go, well, yeah, once we finished up here, then we'll come down at midnight, you say. Midnight. So, all right, see you then. So the Trafalgar Square pigeons go back. And it gets to midnight. They're all waiting. I thought you said these Buckingham Palace pigeons were coming. They, they'll definitely be here. They're definitely coming. Half past midnight, one o'clock. They're just about to pack up. And then in just in the distance there, you see this group of Buckingham Palace pigeons just waddling their way through. And I said, what happened to you lot? I said, well, you know, it's a nice evening. We thought we'd walk. It's so stupid. Now the punchline, you can take or leave. For me, just the it's exchange. It's all in the setup. Yeah, I mean, even I embroidered. A, 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 you don't meet many other groups of pigeons. You can really attach to that. I think is that one of want. your jokes, Jeff? Is no, that, that's an old mainstream joke. Is it one I, of the ones that no one knows who to claim? Well, that was one of the ones that guys were telling dicky bows in the eighties, and then everyone concluded that every single one of those guys was racist and misogynistic. When actually, it was it was a few of them, and most of them were actually really silly, did yeah. silly jokes, and had puppets and all, and sung songs. Oh, I know a song that will get on your nerves, and and suddenly the, the 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 trouncing victory of the alternative scene then decided that every single comic from that era was a bigot. 
Yeah, that's true. Although Yew Tree didn't help the cause of a few people from that era, although I appreciate that was less in comedy than in mainstream kind of entertainment. But we won't get into Yew Tree at the end of oh, the you I, I did a Me Too. You've done a Yew Tree. <laughs> I think we're even now. We've, we've saved it all to the end. I'll give you the third mention of your book, Where Did I Go Right? How the Left Lost Me. Right, that's the last book reference you're getting. Um, so the very last thing I always ask everybody on Namaste Motherfuckers, Jeff, is if there was one bit of life advice you could give to anyone listening, what would it mm. be? Remember your passport number and as many other of your key life numbers as you can, just because it you'll feel really smug when you have to fill out stuff and everyone's fucking about trying to get stuff out. Sort code, account <laughs> number, passport number, driver's license number, if you can. You just feel so happy every <laughs> single time that you have to do that. <laughs> do you know like you know that bit at the end of a flight where you have to fill out a landing card it's yeah. weirdly stressful isn't it you paying oh God, what was the flight number all this stuff first up if you know you're going somewhere else just put the flight number in notes on your phone as you sit down you're done <laughs> okay then you already know your passport number it's just it just make it, it can really it can really screw up the end of a nice long haul flight that Jeff so that's it that's the, the, big, only the thing... big answers to the big questions well the truth is <laughs> politics comedy life i'm not really certain about many things so if i'm going to give a 100 recommendation that i'm certain that that's a good idea and i'm certain that it's been a very very long lockdown for your poor wife but you know it, the lights <laughs> at the end of the tunnel now thanks for joining she's me too, so... she's always drunk at the end of the flight this is why i had to learn to do it in the first place <laughs> there's a reason she's drunk at the end of a long haul flight with you jeff i'm just saying but you know yeah, let's, <laughs> let's not get into that <laughs> comedy friend and all-round good egg Jeff Norcott and you can find links to his book and all his other good stuff in the show notes as well as some information for anyone needing support with their mental health. Now every episode I pick a thing inspired by my guest as you know that I am going to try. The events of recent years, not least the vote to leave, highlighted the fact that I was one of many who was only seeking out people and news sources with opinions like my own. This doesn't support nuanced thinking and it keeps us depressed and it keeps us divided. In an attempt to counter that, I am going to get stuck into Matt Ford's Political Party podcast, which for anyone who doesn't know it, he interviews politicians across all parties in a quite relaxed and not always very political way. And I'm going to start, so help me God, with his episode with Jacob Rees-Mogg. Talk about aversion therapy. Sorry, no more bad-mouthing of the other side. I am going to give that an open-minded listen. And by the way, did I mention Matt is my guest on this podcast in just a couple of weeks? So stay tuned for that, motherfuckers. Namaste, Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, with music by Jake Yap and produced by Mike Hansen for Pod People Productions. If you've liked today's show, please subscribe now on your favourite podcast app and also rate and review the show. We'll be back in your feed next Monday when I'll be talking to author, political activist, journalist and founding leader of the Women's Equality Party, Sophie Walker. 
Yeah, I struggled with that. I struggled with being public. I struggled with understanding to what extent I was public. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfucker. Namaste, mother.